Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome back for another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up in iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Facebook. Oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my debonair and colorful co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, author of 24 books. Check them out, Original Radicals. Curtis, welcome aboard, and we've got an exciting show. We've got not one, not I'm two, telling. not three. We have four <laughs> guests today. It I is going to be a... <laughs> <laughs> We're popular. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is exciting because we're going to have... Uh, a moderate Muslim, Rahil Raza, who works for the Clarion Project, uh, heading, mm-hmm. going head-to-head with I.Q. al-Rasuli. Now, I.Q. al-Rasuli was an Iraqi Muslim, and today he speaks out on the truth about Islam. Uh, he studied uh, Islam and other religions now for going on over four decades. He is an outspoken critic of it. I've been on several panels with him. Uh, most recently with uh, J.J. McCarthy, his show. And, oh, this is going to be, uh, <laughs> rockets are going to fly on that one. And then we're going to have our friend Kay Carl Smith with the Frederick Douglass Foundation coming on. He's got a new project going on out there. We'll be talking to him on that. And then we're going to finish the show with Pastor Paula White, who happens to be a spiritual guide to President Trump. She happens to be one of his pastors. So it's going to be an exciting show. And I don't know if it's the Internet trolls or what, but I just got a call 15 minutes ago from the assistant to the producers of the movie that just is coming out, Gosnell, about Kermit Gosnell. And she thought they were going to be on today. And I says, I never got your email back. So I thought you didn't want to come on. But uh, So we're going to see if we can get them on next week, and we'll have the Gosnell movie on. A lot to talk about, a lot to do. I'm already out of breath. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting, um, the things that are going on right now, especially in D.C., you know, with this um, Kavanaugh on the bench now. So I'm looking forward to great uh, things. We also now have Nikki Haley has also just resigned. She will be stepping down as of January 2019. So there's a lot to talk about. That said, so we don't get too far behind ourselves, Every show we start, we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's show is going out to Sergeant Sean, let me get his name correctly, Sean McNamee Gannon of the Yarmouth 
Police Department of Massachusetts. His end of watch was Tuesday, April 12th of this year. And this is from MassLine.com. A disassembled gun and $25,000 in cash were found hidden in the home where the Yarmouth Police Sergeant Sean Gannon was ambushed and fatally shot by career criminal Thomas Latinowicz, according to new details in the case released by the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office. Gannon, a 32-year-old canine officer, was fatally shot in April while attempting to serve a warrant on Latinovich, a 29-year-old man with 125, that's 125 prior criminal charges on his record. The slaying sparked a wave of public mourning and a petition calling for stricter bail rules and tougher sentences for violent offenders, which has attracted over 50,000 signatures. Latinowicz, who had been charged with murder, was in violation of his probation when Gannon and another officer arrived at a home in Marston Mills to serve his warrant. Gannon and his canine partner, Nero, and another officer cleared the main area of the house before entering an unfinished attic through a hole in a bedroom closet ceiling, the DA's office said in a press release. There they found two backpacks, one containing a large amount of drugs and another containing clothing, according to the DA's office. The officers did not immediately find the perpetrator in the attic, but they found further evidence that someone was hiding there and re-entered the attic with two additional officers to perform another search, the DA's office said. They noticed a piece of insulation which, when removed, uncovered an opening into another section of the attic created by an addition onto the house, the DA's office said. Immediately upon removing the insulation, Sergeant Gannon sustained a gunshot wound. Other officers pulled Gannon out of the attic and began to provide medical aid and withdrew to perimeters around the house as they waited for backup and EMTs. Gannon was taken to Cape Cod Hospital, where he was pronounced dead of a gunshot wound to the head. Latinowicz later surrendered and was arrested. Nero was also shot and was removed from the house for treatment. As police searched the home the following days, they allegedly found a semi-automatic handgun that had been broken down into its component parts and hidden in different areas of the house. Two live rounds of ammunition were found in a toilet, and shell casings were found in the attic. Police also found $25,000 hidden in a bedroom wall and 4000 on Latinowicz when he was booked. More than 1,000 law enforcement personnel traveled to St. Pius X Catholic Church in South Yarmouth to play tri- pay tribute to Sergeant Gannon at his funeral on April 18th. He was posthumously promoted to sergeant. And it follows up on Boston.com. A Massachusetts police officer killed in the line of duty was remembered at his funeral for his faith, professionalism, and engaging personality. Hundreds of family, friends, and colleagues packed St. Pius X Roman Catholic Church for the funeral mass of Sean Gannon, a canine officer with the Yarmouth Police Department. Thousands of officers from around the country stood at attention outside. A line of blue created by uniformed officers marched from the local high school to the church before the service started. 
It was made up by representatives from departments across Massachusetts and New England, from New York City and Chicago, and from as far away as Texas and California. Hundreds of civilians also stood outside the church. We give him back to you without a murmur, but our hearts are wrung with sorrow, the Reverend Paul Karen said during a short service without a eulogy. Karen told the story about the day he, ra- he arrived at the Cape Cod Parish last year. A secretary called to tell him police were on the way to his office. I wasn't here long enough to be in trouble, Karen said. He heard a bang on the door with the words, police, open up. He opened up the door to find Gannon, who hugged him and welcomed him to town. So now we come together and mourn his death. But we also give thanks that he lived, that we knew him on some level, Karen said. Gannon, 32, was shot Thursday, April 12th, while he and other officers were serving an arrest warrant at a home in Bardenstable. The suspect in the shooting, described by police as a queer criminal, is being held without bail after pleading not guilty to murder. Gannon's Belgian Melanois dog, Miro, was also shot, but underwent surgery and is recovering. After mass, canine officers and their dogs line the route to the cemetery for a private burial service. Gannon, who was possibly promoted to sergeant, leaves behind a wife, parents, a brother, and a sister. The New Bedford native was a graduate of Bishop Stang High School in Dartmouth. He had a master's degree from Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Gannon. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. And we also dedicate to them, to also to the military, those that have served from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. To them we dedicate the song, Amazing Grace. God bless each and every one.
All right, we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, Southern-Sense. Of course, I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, I want to welcome everyone that's up in the chat rooms, listening in also on Facebook and YouTube, and also in the studio. If you are listening in the studio, please remember to press 1 so we know that you are uh, asking a question of our guests. And Curtis, we have them both on the line. Uh, shall we I bring them you. along? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, can't wait no longer. Let's welcome first, <laughs> <laughs> let's welcome first uh, to us from the Clarion Project, Rahil Raza. Good afternoon, ma'am. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm well, thank you. All right. And also a friend of mine, uh, he is the author of Lifting the Veil, IQ Razuli. Good afternoon, IQ. It's been a while since you and I have spoken. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, all right. Now, um, Rahil, I was reading up on the Clarion Project, just articles that you've written and things that you've stand for, and uh, I, I commend you for the hard work that you're doing to try to bring around peace. So I want to discuss some of these things uh, that we are doing here. But first, tell us about yourself and how you got involved with the Clarion Project. Well, I am. Um, I was born in Pakistan, but I am now a Canadian, and uh, I think I have been an activist my entire adult life. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm a human rights activist. I've been speaking about women's rights and women's issues, and of course, uh, since 9/11, about the rise of radicalization in the Muslim world. And uh, I was part of a documentary that was made by the Clarion Project about three and a half years ago. It was called Honor Diaries, and this was an award-winning documentary about honor-based violence in Muslim-majority societies. And uh, I narrated it, and I was uh, part of the documentary. And since then, I found the work of the Clarion Project to be very inspiring. Uh, you know, they give voice to human rights activists like myself and to Muslim progressive liberal Muslims. And they also expose the dangers of radicalization throughout the world. So, <clears throat> so I write op-eds for them. I work with them. I make videos. And I speak out uh, whenever necessary. I, you, you and I have known each other for a while. We've served on a panel on J.J. Uh, McCarthy's uh, radio show. But introduce yourself to our audience, because you come from, in some ways, a similar background, but you've taken a different path. Yes, I was born in Baghdad, Iraq. My mother tongue is Arabic. I studied the Quran when I was in school in Iraq. But then when I came to Europe, when my parents sent me to Europe, I had more access to other information sources, like uh, the Bible. And when I tried, uh, actually when uh, I tried to f figure out what the Bible was saying compared to what the Quran was saying about the Bible, uh, to my shock and horror, I found out whatever there was in the Quran regarding the Bible had absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. It's either contradictory or completely different. So I started doing research, and it took me for a very long time, 30 years. So... My knowledge about Islam is actually immense, but I didn't only study Islam. I studied the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, and all of Hadith. So nothing as far as I'm concerned regarding the study of Islam is either difficult, misunderstood, or ambiguous. And 1,400 years of unremitting Islamic jihad shows crystal clear that every Muslim must be a jihadi Muslim. Otherwise, he and she are not Muslims. And I can bring all these 
verses from the Quran to prove my point. Back to you. All right, um, Rahil, when I was reading your stuff, and I have read the Quran, honestly, uh, and I do have my copy here with me with my notes in it, um, and having read the Bible also, uh, as I understand Islam, if you try to change any part of Islam, then you become an apostate. And I've had Dr. Zudi Jasser on the show also. Uh, so how do you, how do you uh, explain this, that if you try to change anything in Islam, it will then attack you, and you are subject to be putting to death. So you can't change Islam. <laughs> well, you're talking here about two separate things, I believe. I suppose you're talking about the Quran, which Muslims believe to be the word of God. And, of course, you know, that is a scripture like any other scripture. But its interpretation is human. And those of us who are in the reform movement, like which Dr. Zudi Jasha started, of course, we believe that there is a lot of room for change and progress in the interpretation because it is, after all, a human interpretation. Islam is an idea, and an idea can evolve and change, and we believe that, yes, we can bring Muslims into the 21st century, and we can have a 21st century understanding and interpretation, but, of course, it will take a lot of work because, uh, as your guest mentioned, it's 1,400 years of embedded dogma and ritual and uh, it's not easy it's uh, it's very problematic because our religious leadership is not willing to talk about that change. But um, we believe that, uh, yes, it can be done, and uh, there are certain notions that were perhaps only applicable in the 7th century or at that time, and we can leave those behind and move ahead with more humane uh, uh, interpretations which are applicable to the 21st century. In response to your question about apostasy, of course, in Muslim countries, anybody who, who mentions this is considered an apostate because it's blasphemy to mention that you want to change anything. But we are very fortunate that we are living in the West where these laws don't apply. So we have the freedom, uh, the individual thought process. Uh, we have the freedom to think freely and be critical thinkers. And it is happening across the Western world. There are many critical thinkers who are uh, trying to reinterpret uh, some of the more uh, violent passages of the scripture. Well, um, IQ, um, every time I hear something like this, uh, I hear where they say, well, listen, you were able to have a reformation within Christianity, uh, but we changed the church, not the religion. And this is what I'm trying to ask. Can Islam ever be reformed? It is impossible. I'm not uh, being fun, nasty or funny. Uh, let, let me put it in very simple terms. As Rahil said, the Quran is supposed to be the word of Allah. The, the Quran, according to Islam, is the most perfect document because it's the word of Allah. Now, since it is perfect, you cannot add a dot to it or take a dot away from it because you make it imperfect. So the ability or the possibility of changing anything in the Quran is zero. And 1,400 years proves my point. I ask anybody, ask any imam anywhere on planet Earth, can the Quran be moderated? I promise you 99.99% of them say you. It's impossible. It's impossible. Give you an example. Well, I killed. Go, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. What I was saying Rahil, is that I respect your... 
Yes, I respect your opinion on this, but we are actually at a point, and as I had said very clearly, we're talking about the interpretation, implementation, and understanding of the Quran. And there are imams that we are working with who are quite open to that understanding. For example, we say that the concept of armed jihad is something that in, uh, existed in the 7th century for a particular reason, uh, because these were tribal communities that only knew how to be at war with each other. There were no nation states and no borders, but now we live in the 21st century, and therefore the notion of armed jihad should be put in the 7th century parking lot. Now, this is a, a parking lot that we want to put a lot of the notions that existed at that time, and we look at it historically, and those of us who, are call, who call ourselves reformist Muslims uh, look at the Quran in a historical context and we try to understand that it was for a certain time and place and many of the notions and concepts are not applicable today. So we believe that there is a possibility of reformation in the understanding, inter- in interpretation and implementation of the text and uh, there are, there's work being done on that. You're absolutely right from the rational point of view. There is absolutely no <laughs> argument. I am from a rational, rational person. Point of view, <laughs> you are 100% correct, but we're not discussing rationality. Belief has nothing to do with rationality. I'll give you an example. I'm going to, I always quote, by the way, in chapter and verse, and ask people who are listening, Google it to prove my point. Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 216. And it says, Jihad. Holy fighting in Allah's cause is ordained for you Muslims, though you dislike it. And it may be that you dislike a thing which is good for you, and that you like a thing which is bad for you. Allah knows, but you do not know. And then we have the hadith. Sahih Muslim hadith 4631. Abu Huraira says, I heard Muhammad say, I love that I should be killed in jihad, in Allah's cause jihad. Then I should be brought back to life and then be killed again in jihad. And he repeats it three times. Sahih al-Bukhari. That's another Sahih. From another source. Al-Bukhari. 4.50. Narrated by Anas bin Malik. The Prophet said, A single endeavor of fighting in Allah's cause, qital fi sabilillah, jihad, is better than the world and whatever is in it. I can quote 106 other verses like this. So well, for like anybody could, to say yes. that an imam, any imam will moderate these things, please uh, show me. Well, we, we do have IQ. We can quote hadith till the cows come home. You know, that, you know, because you're an expert in Islam, as you say, that there are thousands of hadith. But we in the reform movement don't give precedence to hadith because we understand that uh, more than three quarters of them were just created uh, out of falsehood and for the power of the caliphs and for the rulers of those times, and they're not credible hadith. So we balance the hadith against reason and logic, and you just use the word rational. Unfortunately, for a large majority of Muslim, rationale has been thrown out of the window, and critical thinking has been thrown out <laughs> you of agree. the window. You of yes. course, and we are, we are a small minority, and we are struggling against the mainstream. Uh, and I totally agree with you that if you were to present this idea to an ordinary Muslim, they would absolutely lash out and say, you know, you can't touch it, nothing can be changed, nothing can be uh, reinterpreted. But, you know, there are obviously Muslims like us 
who want to live a life of peace and harmony and tolerance. We want to respect people of other faiths. And in fact, that is the mandate of our organization and plus the reform movement. And so, you know, we believe in gender equality. So we do want to work towards that change because you understand as well as I do that, you know, 1.8 or 1.10 billion Muslims are not going to either forego their faith, nor are they going to convert overnight, nor are they going to accept that there is a problem. So, uh, you know, every movement, every change, every reform begins with a few drops in the ocean, with a few people who are rational and and who uh, think clearly. So we want to bring about the change from within because, uh, you know, it's easy in some ways to leave the faith and stand on the outside, but we want to stay within the faith and bring about the change from within. And there are some absolutely brilliant women scholars who are doing work. I mean, 10 years ago, could you have ever thought that there would be a woman imam or that there would be women running mosques? Well, it is happening today. There are women running mosques. They are leading prayers. They get death threats, of course, but it is happening. So this you know, is a change for the better. And this is why we believe that, you know, these changes can slowly come. And we have brought some imams on our side. It is a slow process and a very difficult process. But maybe the change won't come in my lifetime. But we have to sow the seeds of reform and logic and critical thinking for our next generation. I have a question. Thank you, Rodak. What you're trying to do is unbelievably good. But it's I have also a unbelievably for... difficult. As you I have said, a question. I don't like Tell me about it. I, <laughs> I get death threats for doing what we are doing. Uh, of course you would. Yes. <laughs> because you're using had a thinking. <laughs> yes. uh, this is my co-host, Curtis. Go ahead, Curtis. Curtis, yes. Yes. Most major religions have gone through a reformation over time, except for Islam. And I doubt it. It ever will, since everything is perfect, uh, according to one of our guests. Um, but if it ever does go undergo a, re- a reformation, wouldn't it have to start with the way women are treated? Oh, absolutely. And which of your guests said that it is perfect, by the way? I didn't hear that. Is there a third person there who well, said it's perfect? It was said that you can't you can't add a period or remove a period, so it must be perfect. The word. <laughs> well, that that is the the general understanding of the masses. But uh, for those of us who are trying to bring about the reform, obviously we're doing it because we realize that it isn't perfect. And yes, you're absolutely right. That I think that the first and major change is the, the treatment of women. And you know, once the women uh, get empowered, and once the women get educated, and there is enlightenment and vision, and most importantly, critical thinking, that is where the change. Will come because they are the mothers and the nurturers and they are the ones who bring up uh, the next generation. So uh, I have always believed in this and this is what I am struggling and striving to do uh, in my everyday life. And uh, as IQ said, it is a very difficult job because, uh, uh, you know, I get bashed from both sides, the extreme right and the extreme left. And uh, to try and stay on that balanced path and still say that I am a believer and yet I want to bring about change is very, very difficult. But, you know, one step at a time, one drop at a time, one voice at a time, 
uh, I believe I'm I'm optimistic and I'm positive that yes, we will bring about the change. And the reason for that is that the younger generation is fed up with the dogma and the rituals. Uh, many many uh, young Muslims are leaving the faith, and. Uh, they want to be able to make sense of it. And it is for their sake that we want to have a reinterpretation. Rahil, well, in come. one of my books, Look. I said that the survival of, in fact, the evolution of Islam will only occur oh. if the women are given their rights or yes. the women take their rights. In fact, I've always wondered if hundreds of thousands or millions of women in Pakistan or in Afghanistan or in Iran decide together with the internet, they can decide together instantly to leave the house, take off the hijab and walk in the street. Yes. What will happen? Oh my God, all hell will break loose. <laughs> yeah, which hell will yes. break loose? When you have hundreds of yes. thousands of women, do you honestly believe yes. any man will dare... A, Confront them, they will squash them. Yes, I know, and I, and they need to do this, and this is why I, I support that, the women of Iran. But if you do that, if only one group of people do that in any country in Islam, it will yes. catch like a domino effect. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, do, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. It comes back to my original yes. question, because here in Christianity, our faith is based upon the Old Testament and the New Testament. You cannot separate the two. And it's, it's centered around the life and teachings of Christ. So if you try to take any portion of that apart, you try to slice and dice any part of the Bible, it is no longer the Bible. And the same would be then for the Quran. If you try to slice and dice and reinterpret it, it's no longer the Quran and it's no longer Islam. So well, here's how do you reform you see, a religion I, that tells you you can't? Well, here is, uh, is, the, is the key point, what IQ just said. This question of the hijab is not in the Quran. So if women came, millions of women came out in the streets and re- removed the headscarf, which has been a, a dogmatic practice, a cultural practice, a misogynist male patriarchal control issue throughout the Muslim world, it has become now the flag of uh, a Muslim woman. Uh, but again, as I said, it's not something that's mandated in the Quran. So they can come out and take off their hijabs and it would not be against uh, Islam or the Quran. It's just that they have not been empowered to do so for 1400 years. Men have told women what they should do or not do, how they should dress or not dress, how they should be controlled. Am I right, IQ? So You're I would, uh, I'll tell you what, in Iraq, in my country, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and even in the 70s, you would never find a woman wearing the hijab in Baghdad or Basra or Mosul, the main cities. You will find a muhajaba woman only from the lower classes. But I mean, like, like the people who work in the, uh, what do you call it, carpet industry. They work in uh, silversmiths, you know, literally uneducated people. In something well, in Iran... The same thing yes, was in Egypt. Under Abdel Nasser, he forbade the wearing of the hijab. He well, the same allow people it. in Pakistan. I grew up exactly. in Pakistan. You never saw this. So this is a political movement, as you and I well know. It, it has come from Saudi Arabia and the dogmatic, uh, you know, the, the regime, the Ayatollahs in Iran. So 
uh, it was not there. And, uh, you know, my husband lived in Iraq for four years, and he tells me they were the most modern women who wore the highest fashions, and it was the same in Iran. So if that existed at that time in terms of the dress, it can definitely be something that can be brought back if we could only uh, challenge the dogma of the ayatollahs and the mullahs. And, uh, you know, Atatürk did something very wise when he took the mullahs out to the sea and, uh, you know, sank the ships, because that is where our problem is with the religious clergy. And unfortunately, the la- a large number of Muslims, especially from third world countries, those who are uh, not educated, they look to the mullah for guidance. And, uh, you know, in, at least in Pakistan, usually the mullah is the village idiot. And so, no, and I don't mean this facetiously. I mean, I mean I, I'm talking about this as a reality. So I do understand the challenges. I'm very well aware of the problems of uh, patriarchy, misogyny, control. But at the same time, as a Muslim woman and as a grandmother and a mother, I will struggle till my dying day for the change. And I believe that women are going to bring about that change. In fact, only and it's going to happen to in the Western No men. Men will not be able to do it because they are the ones who are oppressing them. Because they're said, part of the problem and not the solution. Yeah. Yeah. The, the men are to, the problem, not the women. Uh, in many, well, we in many to, cases in Iraq, many of the women, the Muslim women, were in fact better educated than the men. There's no question about that. Yes. And yes. To corroborate what you're saying, the word hijab does not appear anywhere in the Quran denoting the covering of a woman in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't exist. By the way, just in case, because uh, you said some of the uh, hadiths are false, but there is a hadith by Aisha, Ummul Mu'minin, I mean, the foremost wife, although she was a child wife of Muhammad, she said, Umar ibn al-Khattab wanted us all to be muhajjabat. But the Rasul, he never allowed us, he never forced us to be muhajjabat. Now, if the wife and the wives of Muhammad were not muhajjabat 1,400 years ago, by what standard of logic or even theology would they force them now in the 21st century? You see, nobody challenges the imams. The only yes. way to destroy right. these things is to challenge the imam verse by yes. verse, hadith by hadith, and destroy them. Yes, and we are, going, we are on that path, trust me. We are working very hard towards doing that. I agree with you 100%. These are self-created hadith to just you know, uh, control the women and to control uh, the masses. And it's very easy to do when the masses are uneducated, uninformed, they have never read the Quran, they have never been educated. It's so easy to use the pulpit to control people. And this is how Islam has always been used. But Again, I say we are now in the 21st century. The women are waking up to the causes. They are writing books about it. They're speaking out. And they're taking charge of their own lives. It's slow. It's a small group. But it will grow very fast because, as I said, there is an attraction to to this kind of uh, version of Islam, which would be hopefully modern and humane and tolerant and gender-friendly. So uh, we hope to do that. Rahel, you should start with Elisa Sarsour in America. I'm sorry, we, we I said you should start with Elisa Sarsour in America. 
Oh, hang on, IQ. You're getting a little. You're getting a little ahead of me because uh, we have some questions in the chat room right now, and one is asking uh, Rahil if you have been getting death threats. Now, IQ, I know you have, which is why you use a pseudonym. Um, but Rahil, have you gotten as far as yes. you needing security for death threats? Well, I have death threats and fatwas and all the hate mail that anybody could ever want, but I don't uh, use security because uh, I can't afford to, for one. And uh, secondly, I believe that uh, a lot of those threats are to shut me up because I'm a woman. It's because of my gender. And, uh, you know, if I showed that I was scared, uh, the extremists or those who are trying to, to shut me up would succeed. So when I get a threat, I speak even louder. I speak more. I, I am. I'm very exposed. Uh, you know, my life is an open book. And so um, I just live with it. <laughs> Well, Rizio, you have to. Um, if you, you want to you have no choice. Exactly. I'm uh, sorry. You wrote me. an article, uh, Rizio, you wrote an article up on the Clarion Project because the name Linda Sassur came up about Carry the Light. And uh, you, were, you were not kind to the movement. Uh, tell us about this that was just here in Canada just a couple of days ago. Yes, this past weekend there was a convention here held by the Islamic Circle of North America. Now, all these organizations are Islamist organizations. You know, their their funding is spurious. In fact, uh, the Islamic Society of North America just had their charitable status removed right here in Canada last week. And so what we do is we constantly uh, report on them. So ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America, held a convention at which they invited uh, uh, you know, uh, what I would what I would call people who, who spew hate, uh, Linda Sarsour among them. I mean, Linda Sarsour said that Ayan Fissi Ali and Bridget Gabriel should have their vaginas removed. How does that ever make somebody, I mean, this is a woman saying this about other women? Uh, so, you know, it, 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 people can hate other communities, but when we are living here and we are trying to promote peace and tolerance, they should keep those thoughts to themselves. They say that in public. Siraj Wahaj, who was an unindicted co-conspirator in the 1993 terrorism trial, uh, you know, these are people who were invited as speakers. It's not as though Canada doesn't have Muslims who could be excellent speakers and speak about issues that are critical to thinking. So. When Muslim organizations in Canada host uh, these con- conference which, conferences, which, by the way, uh, cost a lot of money and are very well-funded, um, they never bring out the critical issues. They're never talking about the problems. You know, they're only going around in circles talking about how wonderful it is to be a Muslim, which, you know, I can appreciate and understand. But we have to also talk about the problems. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to waste time just talking about, you know, it's not about fluff stuff and we are not living in la-la land. The reality is that we are facing huge problems. And unless we talk about them, we're never going to find solutions for them. So I Uh, wrote this very critical piece because uh, I was very ticked off that our government allowed these speakers to come in and speak. Well, I want to thank uh, Kel and Gary for those two questions. Now, Vito, Vito is following up about, you know, your opinion of Israel. And recently, the United States moved our, our uh, embassy uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Well, I think it's a fantastic move. I think it, it should have always been there. I'm a great 
supporter of Israel's right to exist, and at the same time, my freedom to criticize, uh, you know, uh, whatever is seen would be wrong. But before you can have a conversation with, with another country, you have to recognize their right to exist. I'm from Pakistan. Pakistan was created out of partition. It is as old exactly as Israel is. There were people who were disjointed from both sides. There are lands which belong to each other. Yet that kind of criticism has never been leveled at, uh, at Pakistan. Thousands of people were killed. Uh, but, you know, this uh, constant bashing of Israel is something that uh, I find difficult to swallow. I've been there many times. And, you know, one has to separate the people from the government and the politics. And to, you know, uh, for Linda Sarsour to say that one should not humanize the Israelis, for me, I think, is a little over the top. Yeah, well, Cal, who's in the chat room, uh, happens to be a Canadian. Uh, she was saying that there were people that showed up at that event that were not Muslim, and they were turned away, even though it was uh, listed as being public. Is this true? I was not there. Uh, I would not be found there, but I, it, it might very well be true. I do know that there was a rally outside the event. About 50 people turned up, and, you know, they were holding banners, and uh, they were rallying, but the organizers, uh, organizers and the administration of this particular event was terrified of speaking to the reporters who were outside. So I believe that they, they may have turned some people away, which is uh, very normal for, for these organizations. I mean, if they have nothing to hide, then why are they afraid to speak to the media? Yeah, um, do you think the media itself is complacent in not exposing hatred? Of course. They are. They, uh, you know, these things don't get exposed. It becomes our job as an organization to constantly, you know, put these things out there and expose them. And in fact, the, uh, you know, the, the, as I said, the charitable status being taken away from an organization has been the lobbying that went on for about five years before the authorities and media would even expose this and talk about it. So, uh, you know, the Islamist organizations and especially organizations like CARE in the United States have a lot of clout and, and a lot of control on the communities and you know they unfortunately end up being the spokespeople for Islam when uh, we believe that the media should uh, you know have uh, not be biased they should come to people like us as well and hear a different perspective but that doesn't happen and so they've caved into the idea that a Muslim woman is identified by a head covering I've had some very interesting um, run-ins with uh, one with BBC, for example, who reached out to me to give a comment and then saw my uh, uh, web page and saw that I'm not a hijab-wearing Muslim. So therefore, I wasn't considered authentic enough, so they dropped me like a hot potato. And this has happened more than once. Uh, so, you know, the, the entire the image, look at the fashion magazines today. Uh, you know, the hijab has become a, a fashion icon. It was a political tool. And the identity of a Muslim woman is now down to this one piece of cloth. So my credibility is in question because I don't cover my hair. I have a question well, no. for both of you. Go ahead, Curtis. Sorry. Yes, go ahead. It goes in a, a little different direction, but we had a former president who secretly 
sent $150 billion to a regime called <laughs> Iran who exports terrorism. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And why would we have an American president give that much money secretly to a country that exports terrorism mm. against the West? Yeah, well, yeah, well, I don't think it was that secret. All of us knew about it. Uh, this was a man who wanted to appease uh, the, uh, you know, um, regime, so to speak. And uh, it was a very, very bad move in my perspective because none of that filtered down to the people. Uh, this is a regime that uh, supports terrorism, uh, that uh, funds their militia abroad, that is constantly involved in subversive activities, is so oppressive to their own people. I mean, this is 2018, and women are arrested and tortured and jailed for uncovering their hair. How can we live with ourselves, uh, you know, when we see this happening? Uh, they oppress the LGBTQ community, the minorities like the Baha'is. And so, uh, yes, your uh, previous president was a piece of work. <laughs> so, you know, with this appeasement policy that he had... <laughs> Didn't do anyone any good. Well, I got a question for IQ, um, and then I want Raheel to uh, give her impression on it because I'm coming back to again the foundation of Islam. If it and you've said you've written in your article, and you said it specifically in the article you wrote, Canada and the Saudis, snowflake versus tyrant. You said Muslims have strangled struggled for reform for. 1400 years that is when islam was actually born when you started to have these uh, tyrannies um so again you have a religion based upon a faulty figure muhammad because he was no saint to be honest about it he was not anywhere christ-like you have a religion that was then founded on violence so can you ever reform it and continue to follow a faulty man uh iq what is the answer to that can islam honestly be reformed well, can I give you a few minutes? Uh, give me one minute, in fact. Look, having spent over 30 years studying, researching, comparing, and contrasting the subjects of Muhammad, his Quran, his Sunnah, Arab and Islamic imperialism, etc., the following conclusions are indisputable, irrefutable, and incontrovertible, no matter how unconventional or even outrageous they may sound, to clueless, politically correct dimwits. For example, the most egregious lies that have ever been insinuated into the human consciousness are Allah is the same as the God of the Bible. Islam is a religion. Muhammad was a prophet. Islam means peace. Jihad is a spiritual struggle to commune with God. And last but not least, the Quran was divinely revealed. Thus, based entirely upon the Islamic sources and nothing else, the following are also unassailable. One. Since every Muslim is Sharia compliant, then every Muslim is automatically the eternal and mortal enemy of every non-Muslim human being called Kuffar infidels, currently comprising 80% of humanity, of all Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Jews, Atheists, and pagans. Two, it is impossible for any Muslim to be both a good Muslim and a loyal citizen among non-Muslims Kuffar. Prove me wrong. I offer $200,000 to the first human being who can prove any of what I just said wrong. What more can I tell you? Raheel, you're well, trying to do a reformation, but I, I don't see how it is possible if you, if you take the Quran 
as it was written, and the prophet Muhammad, and I, I have never seen a single prophecy from Muhammad, so I don't know why he's called a prophet. Uh, so, you know, you've got a faulty person that had committed crimes, uh, and then you say he's the perfect man, and yet you want to reform a religion that is faulty to start with. That, that's my premise here. Yes, but... Well, but that is your premise and your opinion, Rahim, and I too has a different sorry. premise and a, sorry, a different opinion, and much as I would like to take the bounty that he offered, <laughs> I will not uh, take that up. I can be called a dimwit, but the fact is that there are many different opinions, and of course there are many versions of what you are saying, and in, in our, my, our understanding, Muhammad was not a wicked, evil man, and uh, the there are, uh, of course, books that have been written that say that he was, but there are also books that say that he wasn't. And so, you know, I uh, veer on the side of uh, optimism. He is my prophet. I look up to him. And there are now I read the same Quran that, uh, you know, a one point. Uh, 8 billion Muslims read, but of course there are different translations and interpretations, and I can read it and look at it, and uh, not want to kill anyone, not want to be intolerant towards anyone. Uh, Why is it that I and, and my group of people that I work with are different? We are still Muslim. There must be some value to the faith that creates good people, and so uh, you know, the that's what I'm speaking about, that it is an understanding and an interpretation, and it can be tweaked, and it can be moved into this century, and it can be tolerant. And I will stand by that, that, you know, this is who I am, and this is my work, and this is what I want to do, and I'm not uh, out there to to harm anyone. Thank you. Um, it's It's... I, I see problems with it, and I see what you're trying to do, and I commend you for it. And you've got fantastic articles where you call out people such as Linda Sassour, uh such as Ikna, and other things. Um, you also call out you know, people wanting laws for blasphemy, uh, saying that it's wrong, too. I, but there is a problem with this we have, because Christians and Jewish temples are, are being monitored to look for radicalization, but mosques are not. They're getting a free ride. Should we be equally monitoring them also to look for radicalization? Absolutely. Absolutely. I said this many years ago, for which I got such a bad backlash that I was nearly kicked out. But the fact is that if there is a mosque where we suspect that hatred is being spouted spouted, or radicalization is taking place, absolutely they should be monitored. Because, you know, I don't believe as a Muslim that I should get any special handling or special privileges. We should be treated like any other citizen. If there is a place of worship where there is hate being spouted, where violence is being promoted, absolutely they should be monitored. And if they find that it is happening, they should shut them down. For me, it's very simple, black and white. But then, why don't you ask some of the Western leadership why they are so wishy-washy on these issues? Why are they kowtowing to the Islamists? Why are they supporting Islamists and Islamist organizations as opposed to speaking to us who are saying that these are the problems and these are the solutions? So, you know, there, there is a fault line there as well. And if one wants to have an honest discussion then let's also talk about the weaknesses of the leadership that is looking for votes and it will go to the same mosque where they know that the hate is being spouted just because they want votes. Well, IQ, 
for example, well, let, me, right. let me... Look, look, I, 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 I respect her enormously for what she's trying to do because she's doing something against all odds. I accept that. But what you have in the media in the West, I'm talking in the West, I mean Europe and America, they're not fake news. They are the enemies of the people. Before, ten years before Donald Trump spoke about the enemies of the people. I always said it in my radio talk shows. They are on the record. In every talk show I said, the American media, the European media, are the enemies of the people because they never tell the truth. Never. And I mean literally never. She talked about the BBC. I called the BBC the Boko Haram Broadcasting Corporation <laughs> because they support Islam. <laughs> I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> They will never allow anybody who's, when I don't speak against Islam, to speak against Islam is to tell a lie about them. I never tell a lie. I speak about Islam. I reveal what Islam says from their own sources, backed up by their own people. That's not against Islam. So if I reveal the Germans what Mein Kampf is saying, does that mean I'm an anti-German? I'm revealing the facts. Prove me wrong. But you're obviously not very popular with the media because they don't want to hear people like you and me, although we come from an entirely different spectrum. What you have to probably appreciate and understand that our end goal and vision is the same. We want peace. We want tolerance. We want, uh, you know, gender equality. We want all the things that make the world a better place. Now, if people would understand this, for example, when I talked about the collusion of Western governments, I've been dealing with an issue where in the United Kingdom, there are 89 Sharia courts that are active and all this has been done under the blessing of the British government so should we be asking the question yes so of course there are problems with Sharia of course there are problems in these but why should this be only the battle of a Muslim woman who flies across the Atlantic to be a thorn in the side of the British House of Lords and the British House of Commons when they should be taking the lead so sometimes I feel like it's battering my head against a wall to try and get the authorities, the legal system, our governments, our politicians to understand uh, what the problem is. And then you have the regressive left who call me an anti-Islamist, who call me an Islamophobe. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and they I don't laugh. even know how I to read, spell Islamophobe. Exactly. And, and this whole word Islamophobe was created to stop people from having honest conversations. Look, I am an, a Muslim, but I'm also honest about the problems because, you know, it's like your child who may be a drug addict. Unless you talk about the problem, you're not going to find a cure. And this is what the, the, the cancer, the virus within uh, the Muslim world is right now. We don't talk enough about it because there is a total ban on speaking out. And here in Canada, we have actually a motion in the government uh, called M103, uh, which says that if you criticize Islam or Muslims, it could eventually become a criminal offense. So people shut up. Nobody wants to talk about these things. And, and the same it's a thing huge in Europe, problem. by the way. The same thing in England, the same thing in Europe, in France, in Germany, in uh, every Western European country has exactly the same problem. The only so ones who do not have this problem, yeah, the, only, the only ones are the Eastern Europeans, like Poland, like uh, Hungary, like 
they are the ones who are saying no more immigrants. We yes, but Europe any. is down a deep dark hole. You know that. Europe gave of in course. to the Islamists a long time ago. And so they are down a deep dark hole and it's partly their own fault because they allowed all this to fester. I traveled across Europe to see what the situation was and I saw the ghettos and I saw the power of, uh, you know, the Islamists in these countries. I mean, they openly had offices, um, you know, of Hamas and Hezbollah in these countries. So come on. Uh, you know, let's call a spade a spade. While I'm willing to accept the problems within my own faith and my own community, the rest of the country and the leadership has to also acknowledge that they are part of the problem. And when we see what's happening in Europe, we should look at it as an example and never allow it to happen in America or Canada. This is why we are fighting so hard for sanity. Yep. Okay. Well, um, we're down to our last couple of minutes with both of you. IQ, people can find you at IQRasuli.org. Also, you also have that excellent site. I loved it. Uh, in the name of Allah.org, where you break down the Quran, you, you explain everything uh, about it and the truth about Islam on your websites. Um, I have a link up on the show page so when people catch the uh, podcast, they can click on it and go to see your marvelous work that you do. Uh, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having I know us. That thank you. Really, it was a you, pleasure to be with everybody between, here. You bounced between the UK and here, so and thank you for taking the time to be with us. I always have to wonder what, where you are to know when I can send you a message, what time zone. Uh, Raheel? You're with the Clarion Project, where they can find you at clarionproject.org. I also have a link on the show page to your website so people can read your articles. Uh, you've got one heck of a battle, and uh, I don't see how it can ever happen. But if it is, God willing, then maybe we can find something, some solution. But I don't see it happening, honestly. I, I don't, I'm not optimistic, to be honest. But you have a good heart and a good soul, and I thank you for that. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. Um, we're going to have um, just one last closing remark if either one of you want to say uh, something. So I'll let you have a closing remark right here before you can uh, you take off. Well, if I'm still alive in the next couple of years and if there is change that is brought about by women and I have my own mask, I will call you to come back on the show. <laughs> I ask everybody who's listening to Google my name, because I'm not charging you any money. It's all free of charge. I pay money, believe it or not. I pay, like Rahil does. We pay money to be heard. Can you believe that? We actually <laughs> pay money to educate people. Amazing. Anyway, God bless you all. Take care. God bless you, Take too. Care. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. Uh, IQ Rasuli and Rahil Raza. Uh, check out their websites. Um, I thought it was going to be a lot more of a battle going between the two of them. But, uh, yeah, I, I it sounded like they were in more in agreement. <laughs> sounded like they were more in agreement <laughs> than anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I sat down last night and I pulled up all of her articles and I made notes all over them. And still, you know, I'm not getting an answer. How can you reform Islam without looking at the, the Prophet Muhammad? And the life he led. How can you follow someone like that and form a religion? She said, herself said 1,400 years of, of tyranny. Uh, I forgot what the exact words were. Uh, but you didn't have that prior to the birth of Islam. She wrote, Muslims have struggled for reform for 1,400 years. 
So you didn't have Islam before, and you didn't have the tyranny. But uh, I don't know. Is this uh, K. Carl up on the uh, – if it is our guest, please press 1. That way I know that it's you so I can bring you on to the uh, the show here. Um, Curtis, is that your our buddy? Yep. Yes, it is. Okay. Let's yeah. bring along – Kay Carl Smith, good afternoon, and thank you for popping in last minute on our show. It's always fun to have you with us, Kay. How you all doing? Hey, thank you for inviting me. Glad hey. to be back with you. Oh, it, it is our pleasure. Um, you have a new project I see out there uh, called, why can't I speak today? Diversity Engagement, where you're, you're taking the message to the, the people. Tell us about this new project you've got. Well, the new project is uh, what we're doing. You know, CS knows I've been doing this for 10 years now. We're coming out with an app. Um, the app is called, it's called Trump the Race Card. And in this app, all the things we've been teaching and coaching about for the past 10 years in terms of uh, the word conservative, why the word conservative has a racist connotation, and how do we overcome that? And teaching conservatives how to better articulate our message uh, by leveraging the life and writings of Frederick Douglass. So I've been asked several times, hey, can I come here and speak, come there and speak, and I can't be everywhere. So I found out that the best way to do this and make it affordable where anybody can can get this information now is to come out with this app that'll be out probably not in another four in the four weeks, so we can empower conservatives to learn how to engage their friends, their family members, and even people of different ethnicities, and do it in a way where you're not fearful of being called a racist or an Uncle Tom, but in fact you can get out there and you can trump the race card, pun intended. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was reading it and I was fascinated by it because I've got my tea party meeting next week, and uh, this was something that uh, we can take into the schools. It looks like, and it's like only seventy nine dollars to get the access. Now, this is a limited time price, or is this you know you're going to change it later or what? Oh, okay. Now we're talking about two different things. What you're referring to is the online course. That's an mm-hmm. online course. It's a video driven online course. Um, that's been out there for about at least about almost a year and a half. Um, but in addition to the online course, we're coming, we're coming out with an app, and that's our latest endeavor, what, we, what we're doing right now. And, the, and the, the online course is really for the choir. It's for the conservative choir. It's for freedom activists to empower them with a messaging model, a persuasive messaging model so they can better engage people of different ethnicities in particular, but not just that, but engage anyone regarding your conservative values and do it in a way where you're not worried about having a bridge or somebody being antagonistic, but you do it by leveraging life and writings of Frederick Douglass, which is, in my personal view, he's the ultimate American dream story, the quintessential conservative and the forgotten prophet. <laughs> well, you know, with this rise of Trump, um, are you seeing people now of different backgrounds being more open to your message? Uh, no. Um, actually, I've noticed people are more open to the message. Before President Trump got elected and right after 
president Bubba left office because, especially in the black communities I travel the country, I, I, they, they realized that this Messiah, quote-unquote, did not take care of them. And so since he didn't, since Obama didn't take care of them, they realized, look, we got to do things differently. We got to become uh, more entrepreneurs, and we got to examine how we're voting. So that's what I've noticed. So it's not because of Trump that I see a difference in the in the mindset, especially in the black community. It's because of the past eight years and how they felt they've been left out. All right. Well, um, we had a call coming in right now. Let's see, uh, from Louisiana area. Let me bring the caller in. You're on the air live with uh, Southern Sense. I'm your host, is Annie, the radio chick, along with my co-host, Curtis. Uh, our guest is C.L. Carl. Oh, man. Who's that, C.L. Who am I speaking to? Uh, this is Stanley. How you doing? Hi, Stanley. You have a question or a comment for our guest, uh, uh, K. Carl? Well, I do have a question. I, I mean, you were talking about God today, and um, to be quite frank, I'm at my wit's end. I, I, I help run a local parish here in Louisiana, and we have uh, we have two pastors uh, that are going through something right now, and I could use some advice. Um, they were visited a few days ago by the Holy Spirit, since then, they've not really been themselves. They've sort of been speaking uh, in tongues, and that's still a situation. And we're trying to understand what they're saying. I don't know if you have anyone that could translate or help us understand what's going on, but we're we're a little concerned for them, um, and we're looking for some guidance and some help. Uh, well, I don't think that's the topic that we're talking about. We're talking about with Kay Carl Smith, who is the uh, uh, founder of the uh, – as the head of the Frederick Douglass Republican uh, group. Uh, so I don't know where this question comes from. Well, I see you, you understand God's design for your life. I'm, 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 I'm really at my wit's oh, end. This is, this is, well, this is the problem. Paula White will, Pastor Paula White will be on at the three thirty hour in another 25 minutes. So if you want to call back then, she will be with us. Oh, then. I would love to. That would, that would mean the world to me. That, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that would mean the world to me. I, I certainly will call back. I yeah, thank you. Okay, Carl, you and I yes, both sir. love, we both love history, especially history about um, Frederick Douglass, one of yeah. my, my heroes from that era. But I'm finding today that especially in the young Republican leadership under 35, mm-hmm. 35 and under, they have an aversion to history. And I'm not sure where this is coming from, um, but if you don't have a sense of history, how can you move forward? To me, it's like having Black History Month, yet you never mention who the bad guys were and who were the good guys. You, you never hear them celebrate the Republican Party during Black History Week. You never hear them say, yeah. hey, it was the Democrat Party that, you know, enslaved blacks and, and came up with Jim Crow laws and things like that. And and I'm just wondering if this may be um, something that's, that's coming out of the schools, the way they're teaching kids not to really regard history. Actually, I've heard that in some schools they don't even teach history anymore. You know what, C.S., I just had this conversation a couple of days ago 
Um, and I'm, I've noticed the same thing because, first of all, no, they don't teach, uh, in particular, Douglas. They don't teach Douglas at all in terms of the substance of Douglas. They teach the generalities, which is the feel-good kind of thing, that he wrote a book and he was a abolitionist. But in terms yeah, of the okay. meat of Douglas, the writings of Douglas, which is transformative in your thinking, Douglas on the Constitution, this ex-slave writing about the virtues of the Constitution, he writes about the three-fifth clause and clarifying this false rhetoric that's been pushed out by the left. They don't teach that. And I take a step one further, C.S., which you asked me originally about, this younger leadership of conservatives. What I noticed uh, recently, you have some um, young people who were liberals last week. Now they're the flavor of the month for conservatives because they're they're saying things that talking to blacks that a lot of mainstream conservatives want to see and want to hear, but there's no message. I'm not going to call any names, but what I've said to these people that I talked to them said, look, what is your message? You just can't go around and be a smart aleck. I didn't use that word. I said something else and think that's a message. You got to <laughs> talk some history. You can't engage right. people about the Constitution being a smart aleck. Yeah, you got a foundation. And they don't have Douglas. They don't have Douglas because it's not being taught. And they have not really been awakened yet to read and why and study Douglas on their own, like you and I have done. Because you're not going to get it in school. The left's going to make sure of that. No. You know, that, it, that's it's what funny you that there's so much. You, there's so much yes, truth to that because you got to continue to write, yes. You got to continue oh, to get your books out there, and you got. And I think this app. I think I think this whole idea, of this technology of an app, is so important because now, of course, we can't do anything for free right now, but we can make it very affordable through an app. Anybody can spend five dollars on the app. Even high school have, have, have that kind of money. But the information yeah. now is going to be there through this app. That's what we're excited about, and that's going to be how we're going to get. Just imagine, CS, just imagine a growing a nationwide movement, a nationwide liberty movement of conservatives who know how to leverage the life and the writings of Frederick Douglass to win the narrative, to win people, and inspire people to vote their values. It'd be over with for the left. They got to go back to France. See it? See us? They got to leave. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, um... We'll send them over to Kellos in Canada. Uh, but it's true. <laughs> That's so right. Much, so much. So much of the history is not being taught. And you know, here I live in, in South Carolina, and. Uh, I was talking to someone, and I says, you know, there's so much rich history here. I says, uh, we, why don't we see more statues of Harriet Tubman? And the, they, the question was, who's Harriet Tubman? And wait yeah, a minute, yeah, you're born yeah. here, and you don't know Harriet, but you, who's Robert Smalls? You know, uh, th- these are things that we should be teaching, but we're not. And how can you know where you're going if you don't know where you have come from? And exactly right. And how can you recognize a lie when you don't know the truth? <laughs> that's the problem. And that's what we're that dealing with, because so because history is being repeated. History is being repeated. But how you know if it's a lie if you don't know the you don't know if it's the truth? And that's what the left is counting on. That's why the left is rewriting history because people don't know what the history to begin with. And, and I, I see it on that. television. I see it on television all the time. Um, you have pundits there. Um, representing the Republican side, and they, they're asked a question, and they really don't know the answer. And I'm, 
I'm yelling at the TV, you know, such and such is the answer. Say it, say it. But they don't know the history, so they can't counter. So they sit there no, and just, you know, look, they, they look defeated. Your comments, you just said, give me confirmation. I need to make sure we meet our target uh, in terms of our dating getting this out because it's, it's needed. It's so needed. We History where people can have in their pocket referred to it, and we got to do it for the media because people are not really more evident audience. So that's what we're doing. Okay, Carl, you're breaking up. Are you Good on a, a yeah. cell phone? If you're on I'm a cell phone, you can get to it. Yeah, you're breaking up. Okay, okay. Making uh, a better, making a spot. Okay, when you got more bars, but this is true. You know, we've we've got to get the information out there. I've I've been watching a lot of these talking heads, and you'll have someone from the left throw out something as if it's God's truth, and I'm screaming at them. But where are you getting your facts from? And no one is challenging them. You know, Trump is at his lowest lowest rating numbers since he took office. Uh, excuse me, what poll are you looking at? Not the same ones that I'm looking at. And they'll throw things out as if it's it's the truth. And the right just lets it slide past without a challenge. Carl, are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh, oh you're a lot better. A lot better. Okay. okay. Yeah, you're so right. And that's, that's what we've been doing all these years. And CS, you know that I was... Uh, if it wasn't for the writings of Frederick Douglass and taking time to read that history and understand that history, I would still be a lost young man today because Douglass really opened my eyes up to understand what liberty is all about, why the Constitution is so important. And dealing with things he dealt with is really the same thing we're dealing with today. Those of us who, who advocate and want liberty and maintain our freedom, being attacked by those who are tyrants. Doug is dealt with the same thing, and he wrote about it, thank God. Yes, thank God on that one. And when when do you expect this app? You said a couple of weeks. What, by the end of the month? Yeah. Good. And it's gonna people take about, can find it? It's, it's gonna, yeah, it's going to take Apple and, and uh, Android probably about three three to four weeks to approve it. That's where we are right now, so it's with them. So, but if you want to get on the VIP list and send when the when the app is when the app is comes out and is released, we'll send you an email. So go to our website and that website is libertymessengerusa.org. Libertymessengerusa.org, and when you go to the website, you it's an opt-in page where you can provide your email address, provide your first name, you go on our list, and then when the app is available you'd be the first to find out about it. All right. Now, is that that link that's on your other page, diversityengagement.org? Diversity engagement is for the FDR online course. We have a uh, uh, a 13-module online course. Where you can, I think it's like $79, and you get a copy of the book. And also you get two 30-minute coaching sessions with me as, as you go through the course. So two different things. That is that point right, you you're do, talking about is that you have diver- well, yeah, up on the diversity uh, engagement. I'm looking at the web page right now. 
there's a logo yeah. that you have up on top for Liberty Messenger uh, USA. What you, my recommendation yeah. is place a link to that so people can click on that and go there also. Okay, I will do that. I'll make sure my webmaster knows that. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, Carl. <laughs> Go ahead, hey, sir. I, I don't know if you know, but I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Um, yes, I do. The home yeah. of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Well, in grade school, it was it was the norm for us as um, elementary school kids to go on a field trip to um, Independence Hall to see the Liberty Bell, to see Constitutional Hall, to see Franklin's grave and, and Bessie Ross's house, you know, the woman that allegedly, you know, made the first flag. I'm just wondering, with all this hoopla about the um, African-American Museum in D.C., if any of these people ever visited Cedar Hill, where Douglas used to live, or if they even know about it, and if the kids that are in the school systems in D.C., if they ever get to go on field trips there. Because I would think that would make a, a lasting impression at a young age to visit a place like that as much as it did for me when I visited, you know, Independence Hall in the Liberty Bell. I, you know, I've, uh, I know a handful of uh, schools that's doing that, but it's not widespread. Um, especially when you deal with your school where you don't have a lot of black students. I don't see them going holler at all. Those that do go, and that's fairly, are those schools serving predominantly black students. And that's, that's a shame because everybody knows that history uh, of Frederick Douglass, regardless of their own ethnicity. Well, we got a, a question in the chat room from Vito. Uh, he's asking if you see a shift in the minority community from those with deep ties to left to moving center and or right. Repeat that question again. Now you broke up on me. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Vito's asking if you see a shift in the minority community from those deep ties to the left to moving center or to the right. Yeah. Uh, I see, well, here's the thing. Is, and see, as you may chime on this, too. When I look at my own personal life and my own community, blacks are some of the most conservative folks you have met in your life. We're not liberals, especially American liberals. We're very traditional in our values, but we're just not voting that way. So what I do see, I do see a shift where people in our communities now are waking up and start voting their values and stop voting a label. They're getting past this label piece in the Instead of voting like what my grandmother used to vote and using that as an excuse, but really voting based on values that they believe in and make sure that the candidates that they vote for uh, espouse those values. Yeah, I, I see a shift, too. And um, like I said, with the, the younger um, black Republican leaders, I, I enjoy that they have the courage to come out and speak. But I also want them to have a foundation so they can truly make their case, you know, and make it, you know, on an intelligent level, you know, because I'm going to tell you, the, the left will come at you with everything that they have. And you got to be, you got to be prepared to play ball with them. You really do. Yeah, you, but, yeah exactly. We, that That's what's missing. And again, it, it hit on, it hits on what you and I just got through talking about. 
you have to have a message. If you when you come out of the closet, so to speak, and you as a black person embrace conservatism, and that's your utterance now because of your enlightenment. There's some pushback you're gonna deal with when you go back and tell your family members and friends about it. So you gotta know how to guard yourself against that pushback and learn how to articulate your your new awakening in a way where you are you become inspirational and not confrontational. And the only way I know how to do that that I seen work is learn how to leverage the life and writings of Frederick Douglass. Because his values that we believe in stand the test of time. Even though he lived in the 19th century, the values still apply, and the values are still working today. The values that helped a man rise from slavery to prosperity will also help a free person rise from poverty to prosperity. Well, Carl, we had on just recently uh, Brandon Strucker that started the movement Walk Away. So Cal is asking you your opinion about that movement, because uh, I've watched a lot of those videos, the Walk Away, and you said something earlier that struck me and reminded me of when I watched it, that they didn't have the argument to back up why they walked away. They didn't have a message. They just said, oh, well, I, I realize that, you know, they're not all standing up for what I believe in, so I'm walking away. So what's your opinion of the walking away movement? Do you think it's got any merit to it? I think it does have merit because people are walking away. What I suggest, they need to see us. They need to learn why Doug has ran away. That's what they need to do, so they can have some, so they can have some content behind what they're doing. They lack content. Here's what I'm saying: is this, when I walk away, that's my story. But the left will attack me because that's my story. But when I tell them I walk away because I've been inspired by the life and writings of Frederick Douglass, how are they gonna attack me on that? You see what I'm saying? So we gotta learn how to mm-hmm. inoculate ourselves against the vicious and vile attacks of the left because it's hard to stand against that alone as one individual, one person. you got, you, you, you got to guard yourself against that. And the way you do it, you inoculate yourself by getting into the life and writings of Frederick Douglass, learn how to leverage his life and his writings to better articulate your, your, your dilemma, your situation, your, your view on certain issues. So the walkway movement, I love it. I love the idea of people being inspired and having this awakening. I love that. But what's the message? What's the message? The message he has been talking about, they got to get into history. And me in particular, I advocate you got to learn how to leverage a life of Frederick Douglass because, like I said, they're talking about how they're walking away. Well, hell, Douglass ran away. And he <laughs> writes about it. No. When when that people get this app on their phone, how does it work? What do they what would they expect to see? That's a very good question. The app uh, again is entitled Trump the Race Car. It starts off with my testimony. How did I come up with this uh, uh, this engagement model, this messaging model? And I tell and I explain the event that led up to how God inspired me and picked my pricked my spirit this Frederick Douglass Republican engagement and messaging strategy. That's chapter one. Chapter two is entitled The Big Elephant, where I talk about from a historical perspective, why does the word conservative have a racist connotation, especially in the black community? There's some historical things that took place that we have to understand in order to better 
articulate our values in order to engage people of different ethnicities in particular. It's called the big elephant. And that giant pachyderm has to be dealt with. The next chapter, chapter three, is why Frederick Douglass. Why is Frederick Douglass such a divine fit to help us deal with what we're dealing with right now in our country and this whole thing about liberty? Because Douglas gives us a Douglas gives us a literary legacy that we can lean on. He wrote about these things: the importance of free speech, personal responsibility, economic prosperity, immigration, uh, uh, school choice. He wrote about these things. So learning how to leverage that and learning the life of Douglas. Here's why Douglas is so key. When I share this with other people, that what the left try to do, they try to put people in victim categories. Okay. You got all these victims out here. But when you share the life of Frederick Douglass with people, they quickly realize that they cannot out victimize Frederick Douglass. It doesn't work. <laughs> Nobody today is starting in life as low as Frederick Douglass. So through the life and writing of Frederick Douglass. So then the next the next chapter, the chapter talks about the Frederick Douglass Republican engagement strategy. What is it? How it works, and we break it down in detail what's happening and how this whole Frederick Douglass engagement strategy works, and we kind of role play. And the last chapter is called The Challenges. This is where, on a monthly basis, we're going to provide fresh content to help liberty advocates deal with the false rhetoric of the left. For example, if you're out there engaging, somebody called you a racist and Uncle Tom, how do you take that encounter or that challenge, and you turn around and you make it a teachable moment? We're going to have that in there. We're going to talk about the whole issue about the Confederate flag and the Confederate monuments. How do you take that issue that the left is pushing, make it a teachable moment, like the Christ did when he was challenged by the scribes and the Pharisees? He turned around, he made it a teachable moment. Um, whole thing about the NFL players dealing and the whole issue about the flag uh, and, and so on. How do you respond when someone says that if Douglas was alive today, he'd be a Democrat? How do you take those challenges? Because the left is not going to stop with their false rhetoric. They're not going to stop. We have to learn as liberty advocates, as conservatives, how to take that false rhetoric and make it a teachable moment and awaken people and wake people up. So every month we'll be writing uh, content in that chapter called Challenges based upon the writings of Douglas and really staying in tune to some of the current events that's taking place and make sure we put information out there in people's hands so now liberty advocates can get out there and start better engaging their family members and friends and people of different ethnicities by leveraging life and writing to Frederick Douglass. Well, now I'm going to ask you about that big elephant in the room. Just why is it that the conservatives are always viewed as uh, racist? It goes back in the history. It goes back to uh, specifically in 1964 when um, the uh, – when, let, me, let me start this way. 1964, July 2nd, 1964, LBJ signed the civil rights legislation into, into law. Your staunch racist Democrats, they filibustered, they voted against it. Now, there was a certain Republican senator who also voted against it, but he didn't vote against it based on being a racist. He voted based on constitutional grounds. His name was Senator Barry Goldwater. Now, I'm going to tie two, not two dots together. Do you recall Senator Goldwater's nickname? His nickname was Mr. Conservative. What was the title of the book he wrote in 1960? The book he wrote was The Conscience of a Conservative. Now, so, so he was not a racist, Dr. King said, 
but with his no vote, he sided with the racists. So come 1964, the GOP convention in, in uh, San Francisco, the Republican Party nominated who to run against LBJ? Mr. Conservative, the guy who sided with the racist Dixocrat with his vote, Barry Goldwater. When that happened, black folks left the Republican Party in mass, and the word, cons- the word conservative and the name Republican Party since that time has been synonymous with the word racist. And ever since that time, we've been on the defense. So the, so, so the Democrat Party, the party they gave us Jim Crow, they gave us segregation, they're calling us racist. You see what I'm saying? We lost control of the narrative. But we got to get it back. Well, and the way they get it back is this, through Frederick Douglass, in my opinion. Well, there's, uh, there's a book you should write, uh, read uh, written by a friend of mine, Judge Murray Silver. He was a civil rights attorney in Atlanta and Savannah. Um, he worked with Dr. King Sr., uh, Reverend Abernathy and everything uh, through the civil rights movement. He wrote a book called Daddy King and Me, and he gives a different take on that story, uh, somewhat where, uh, similar to you with Barry Goldwater being blamed uh, for you know the blacks leaving. But he's also saying that there was an agreement when Martin Luther King Jr. was jailed, and it was because of the Kennedy brothers that said, well, listen, you know, we'll get him out if you get us the black vote, and Daddy King Sr., delivered the black vote, something like about 200,000, and from there on, blacks began to vote because of that. Uh, There was also the agreement uh, between Republicans and Democrats in order to get the 1950s civil rights uh, legislation passed, which LBJ filibustered every chance he could. And they said, listen, we get this passed, we'll swap off. We'll let you take some of the black votes away from us. So there's several different things that were going on at that time period. Well, I, I started with 1964, but that's when the word conservative became synonymous with racist. But in the app, I, we get into what happened in 1960. When uh, Dr. King was arrested, they went to uh, President Nixon first, who was a Republican. He refused to help Dr. King get, get out of jail. So then the advisors of Dr. King went to the Kennedy. So John Kennedy called Judge Oscar Mitchell in Atlanta to get the charges dropped. And uh, Robert, I mean, Robert Kennedy called the judge. John Kennedy called Coretta to check on When that happened, Dr. King Sr. said, look, you help my boy get out of jail, I'm going to help you get elected. You're exactly right. But the big shift came in 1964. Many of my family members were, 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 were devout Republicans until 64. K. Carl. Yeah. Could you, could you explain a little better why Barry Goldwater voted the way he did. My my understanding is it had to do with um, legal, the legality um, issues at the time, whether or not the the civil rights bill was constitutional or whether or not we really needed it because we had existing laws that would deal with that. And where he got his information from, as far as Robert Bork, could you explain that? Yeah, Robert. Yeah, Robert Bork wrote a seventy-five-page opinion that Goldwater used to form his decision to vote against it. He voted against the civil rights legislation based on Title II that dealt with um, that dealt with uh, um, oh, what was it? It was Title II and Title Seven. One of them dealt with housing; the other one dealt with employment. And uh, you're right. 
uh, Goldwater was a graduate. He believed that, look, let the states take care of their own business. You know, the federal government has no role to interfere in state affairs, especially when it comes to private business. Let them decide how they want to manage things in terms of segregation. Well, when, that, when, the, when Dr. King heard about that and Royal Wilkins, who was the president of WCP, they said, what are, what are you talking about? You're going to tell black folks in Mississippi that their future lie in the hands of uh, these racist politicians? No, the federal government got to get involved and in this situation we got going on in the South. So, so before he died in 1998, Goldwater said the way he voted in uh, 64 was a mistake and one that he regretted it because now, because go back and look at it, Goldwater voted for the Civil Rights Act in 57 and 60. But because of Title II and Title VII, he had some problems with it because he felt it was unconstitutional. But it was a – the way I like to put it, that Goldwater wanted to be so constitutionally right, but he was morally wrong because he was telling the people in the South, black folks in the South, we're not going to bother and worry about what's happening down there. We're going to let the state solve their own problem. Well, the state was the problem. Even black folks in second-class uh, condition, they weren't going to solve the problem. They wanted segregation. That's that form of liberty they wanted in the South. They didn't want black folks to be free and have equal opportunity. So, and that's what that's I was a, trying to get. That's what I was trying to get at. Um, um, Goldwater was constitutionally correct, but morally yeah. incorrect. He, he definitely was. Yeah. And Dr. King said he wasn't a racist. When you go back, you can Google this. Like covered in the in the app. When when uh, Goldwater won that nomination from the GOP in 1964, uh, July 16th, Dr. King did a press release that day. He did a press conference. He said, "Look, he said, he said it's unfortunate and disastrous that the Republican Party has nominated Senator Barry Goldwater as a presidential as a presidential candidate." His, he said, "His his conservative he's the word his conservative philosophy gives aid and comfort to the races." And right then, that's when uh, he only got six percent of the black vote. Right there. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot to. Uh, uh, that's a lot. Um, so the question I'm is just, how we go over Curtis. That's the question. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. Curtis, um, if you can try to try get to, Pastor White another. Um, yeah. Try again. One more call. Um, Very well. Yeah. All right. Well, Lee, no, let it, me it leave Kay Carl with a, a question while I'm doing that. Go ahead. Kay Carl. All right. Yes, sir. Have you ever heard of Smith versus Allwright? And this has to do with um, blacks not being able to vote um, down, you know, under Jim Crow laws and whatnot. So they, they went to court to fight that, and eventually they won, which allowed them to join the Democrat Party because it wasn't a lot of Republican um, um, presence in the South, and the Democrat Party was basically the only party they could really be affiliated with. So they went in and joined the Democrats with the hopes of changing that party, but it ended up being the reverse. The, the Democrats' message and and propaganda ended up converting the blacks from conservatism to liberalism and progressivism. Can you comment on that while I'm making this call? <laughs> Well, I can't comment on that. I got to become more, a lot smarter. I've heard about that. See, yes, I, I have not, uh, unfortunately, taken the time to research that and read that to understand that. So I apologize. But that, that's on my that's on my bucket list, if you will. But you can see it happening. Mm-hmm. How 
they were uh, yeah. led to, to join a party that they really didn't want to be a part of, but they wanted to have a voice. And uh, they yeah. got overtaken. Exactly. What what year was this now? This is early 60s? Um, 50s. Yeah. Smith versus All Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to research that. See ya. There's so a question up in the chat room from our friend Cal asking about John Hansen, asking if he was the first free Constitution American president. He was technically the first, uh, the president of the first Continental Congress, not the U.S. president. He was the president of the Continental Congress, and the myth was that he was black, but he was actually white. Uh, so I hope that answers your question, Cal. These are little interesting facts in history that we, we should know about the different Continental Congresses and how it went to create the, the Constitution, this is not being taught. And in the battle, in the creation of the Declaration of Independence about whether or not to include you know, free blacks in there, there's a whole lot of history that is not being taught. You're right. You're exactly right. Well, we've got to get to the bottom of that and start getting getting more involved in our education. And this is, I've been harping on this for years. You know, unless we take back control of our education system, we are going to continue to lose generations of kids. And these kids are growing up to be our future leaders. And if they are uneducated, what would that make our nation? What state will we put our nation in? And this is why your app is very important. And you're going to see history start repeating itself. Because they're not going to learn a lesson of the history. They won't know the history. Yeah, because right here, in right where we are in South Carolina, we have a fight with the school board. Out of the 11 seats, uh, six of them are up for six, – yeah, six, seven, I think, are up for, for election. And there are challenges in every single seat. Uh, not one of them is going to have a incumbent being safe until after the election. We'll see. Because the, the people here are so upset and angry with the education system, and they see the, the lack of quality in the students it's turning out. And it, it, this is something we have to actively become involved in. We can't just talk about it. Get involved and, become, and go to your school board meetings. Did I lose Carl? Okay. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, I was just waiting for your return comment. <laughs> I, I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. I was just that, asking that for your return return comment about my telling people to become actively involved in what is going on in their school district and knowing who is their school representative, going to school board meetings, and demanding you know transparency. You know what? One thing I learned from I mean he is so he has so helped turn my life right side up. I learned that when you vote. And I used to do this. I used to vote, and that's all I did. I just voted. I was I did not stay in tune legislatively. I didn't stay in tune what was going on in terms of policies. If a policy came up, I disagreed with it. I found out too late, and it was already a law. So what I learned from Frederick Douglass, don't vote and abdicate the responsibility. You vote and agitate the politicians to do right according to your values. I don't care if it's a D behind the name O and R. You've got to stay on top of these folks. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to see what happens uh, with this, this election. Um, I, I see it's not going to be the blue wave. I don't think I, I don't see that happening. Do you? Um, 
I, I, th- I think they may have some. I don't think it's going to be a blue wave. I think they may have a few victories. Um, uh, but I don't think it's going to be uh, where we're going to lose control of the House. Uh, and the or Senate. the Senate. <laughs> yeah. Now, at the local yeah, level, so. it may be a little bit different. No, so, I don't see that happening. What do you, what do you have planned next, K-Carl? Uh, what I'm doing for the next three weeks, I'm uh, in the office every day uh, doing the design and development of this app. I'm doing this myself because I, uh, I didn't have the money to pay these guys $20,000. I had to learn how to do some programming. I'm not a programmer, how to do this app myself. So that's what I'm doing for the next three weeks is uh, make sure that when it comes out that uh, we got these bugs out of it and, uh, and, it, and it goes well. Well, you know, we had we're waiting for Pastor White to call in, and we keep on getting her answering machine. Um, you can call just so many times, and we'll see what happens if we can get her back. So, Carl, uh, can you stay with us for the next eighteen minutes? I can't. But if I if my phone call drops, I will call you back because I'm mobile right now, going to pick myself out of school. But I'm on the line. <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to ask your opinion about this uh, Kavanaugh Circus, and he had the ceremonial swearing-in yesterday at the White House, and I thought his his acceptance speech was very gracious uh, in the way it was done. What's your overall opinion about this? And I think we just lost him. Well, Curtis? Did we lose Curtis, too? They'll call back. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm back. There yeah. it, is. it just would be for a minute. Uh, you asked about Kavanaugh. Um, yeah. I didn't hear the and last the part of your question, but my, but my original thought on that, all that was was a show by the Democrats to show their base that they're fighting for them so the base could come out and vote for them in November. That's all it was. And it's unfortunate you're, you're guilty just based on a, someone's allegation, or you, you have to defend yourself based on someone's allegation. It's so sad. Friends that I know, they were appalled to that circus that they saw on, on TV. They're appalled. Yeah, you know, he was his first swearing in was on um, Sunday, and to see people, a mob, at the doors of the Supreme Court, banging on the doors of the Supreme Court. Unbelievable. Where was the Capitol Police? Where was the cordon to keep the people away from doing that? In the property destruction, you see one woman sitting, standing on the lap of Lady uh, Justice. Where was the Capitol Police to prevent that from happening? And you know what? Uh, I, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Alabama. Born in Arkansas, I grew up in Alabama. I'm here to tell you, based on my own personal experience, not what I've observed, my own personal experience, well, what you see from the left is it's not a surprise because the biggest racists I ever had to deal with in my life are white liberals, not white conservatives. The biggest racists I've dealt with in my life are white liberals. And then they want to turn around and want to take care of me. I don't need them to take care of me because they always give me a, they always have some type of mischievous uh, in, uh, intent involved. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't get into the social engineering. You remember, you remember, you remember, CS when Douglas was asked about what shall we do with the Negro, 
And Doug said, what you mean, what shall you do? What shall you do with You did enough. You made him a slave. Leave him alone. Yeah. Leave him alone. Leave us alone. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to what you say because I don't know if you ever heard of the Gary Plan, which was put together by a uh, Confederate general who went on to be a state senator from South Carolina. The famous caning of another senator on the on the floor of the Senate. Uh, that was our our Senator Gary. He came up with the Gary plan where every single, every Democratic white male should have control over several black men and therefore control the vote and force them to vote Democrat. You know, that was the Gary plan. It gave rise to the red shirts, which gave rise to the KKK, all born out of the Gary plan. Unless we know our history yeah. and where it came from, they would not understand. Isn't it kind of interesting, this whole issue about these Confederate monuments um, be taken out of the public square, and it's the Democrats who want to hide their history. That's the right. Exactly. The Democrats. They and want so to erase their, that, their, their ties to slavery. That's exactly right. So somebody asked me what my thoughts are. I said, look, I have two, two issues here, the flag and the Confederate, Confederate monuments. With the flag... In the South, they started flying the Confederate flag back in the 1950s, and it had nothing to do with their ancestors. They started flying the Confederate flag over state capitol as an in-your-face move to integration. So what I believe that, since I'm an ex-military guy, when you lose a war, you don't get a chance to fly your flag. The flag goes in the museum. It's an artifact. I mean, we're not flying a Union Jack flag in Washington, D.C. So the Confederate flag goes in the museum. They don't go over the state capitol. Now, with the Confederate monuments, I have a different take. My thing about the Confederate monuments is this. Leave them where they are, but tell the whole story about these generals. And in addition to that, if you've got a, uh, a statue of a Confederate judge who, who upheld slavery, let's put a statue of Harriet Tubman and uh, Frederick Douglass on the other side of the sidewalk who were abolitionists poured into these racist journals and said how they opposed slavery. Let's tell the whole story. So don't yeah, I love well, somewhere where people don't go. Yeah. I love her quote, Harriet Tubman's um, you know, I could have freed a thousand more slaves if only they knew they were slaves. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's 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 a shame that, you know, we're losing so much. Again, it comes back to education, 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 which is why I'm looking forward to seeing your app, which is gonna be coming out shortly. So make sure you get on that list. It's gonna it's gonna come out, and it's gonna be very affordable. Uh, my marketing people tell me that be, the app is probably gonna be priced like at like four dollars and ninety nine cents for the app. Um, ah, well, I am I am on your list. You will see Southern <laughs> Suns on your list. <laughs> so, so the the key thing is we gotta get this message in the hands of freedom activists those who hold liberty in high esteem and empower them with a messaging strategy so they can get out here and start engaging and inspire people really to reignite America's passion for liberty. And the best way to do that is by leveraging Frederick Douglass, who wrote about these things and lived it, by the way. And we, we have to get it in the school system as well. It's, yes. It, yes. It takes me, they take me to task every time, you know, People ask me to, you know, go to a school to talk about the true history of, you know, the Civil War and slavery, and then I'm, I'm told, well, we can't do that. That's that's 
That's politics. It's too political. How can that be when you're talking about the history of America, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's the truth. What, yeah. When did the truth yeah. become political? It's because they want it to be political, so they have an excuse to, to keep you away from those children mm-hmm. with the truth. Exactly right. Yeah, and the more, the more you have someone that's living in ignorance, the more you then can control the conversation and them and their vote, which is what this is all about. What better way to control their vote by controlling their ignorance? Is that not right? You know what? You're exactly right. This, again, I get back to this. Not only did Doug is right about these things, he lived it. Because when you talk about not having liberty, that's the life of a slave. Doug just wrote these things. He wrote them down. Doug said education, or he said knowledge, makes a child unfit to be a slave. <laughs> and and uh, well, I just finished reading. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we just have a question from our friend Kel in the chat room. Number one, she wants to know if she can borrow you so you can be slapped uh, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> but her actual question is, um, <laughs> can, can, she, can she in Canada use this app? She lives in Canada. Is she in Ca- Almost definitely, yeah. It, it'll be on the Apple Store. It'll also be on the Andrew Marketplace. So the message of liberty has a universal appeal. Um, and and we're fighting socialists. We're fighting tyrants. That's what we're fighting. Douglas wrote about tyrants. I was speaking at a college one day this past last month, and I, you know, this whole thing about freedom of speech on college campuses. Well, see, as Douglas gave this speech in Boston called "The Plea for Free Speech in Boston," Douglas said, "Quote: Tyrants cannot tolerate free speech because they know the power of it." That's right. So anybody who opposes free speech is a tyrant. This comes from an ex-slave who's writing this. <laughs> and then Douglas says slavery and free speech cannot coexist. Well, we're going to have to direct people to go to the website, which is libertymessengerusa.org. So, Cal, if you just type into your browser, libertymessengerusa.org, uh, you can sign up. It's, just scroll down to the bottom. All you need is just your email address and your first name. Uh, that's all you need to sign up. That's how easy it is, isn't it, K. Carl? That's it. You're exactly right. And then when you go to the second page, um, we have a one-question survey that we're asking people to answer. And the question is this. What, what is it that you want us to address that you're dealing with? In other words, what kind of encounters have you had when you felt dumbfounded and you wish you knew how to better articulate it and turn that conversation around. What is that issue? What is that question you have? Let us know, and we're going to come back and share with you a suggested response based on what we call a Frederick Douglass Republican perspective. Interesting. I'm, I'm really I'm excited about seeing this app come out, and I don't pay for apps, but this one I will pay for if it's not free, I don't. <laughs> well, this, we certainly need it. We certainly need it because today these kids are being taught that socialism is the way over capitalism. Yeah. And they could not be yeah. more wrong. But I got yeah. blacks yeah. telling me, oh, "Give me some of that socialism." I'm like, "Are you crazy or what?" You know, you had ancestors that fought and died 
fighting socialism and communism. And you folks, you, you, you to the, the the left got you to the point where you want some of it. You, you have no idea what you you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea um, because again, if they if they get into uh, Douglas did an essay he called the slavery system is part of the slavery system. When you read Douglas' analysis of the slavery system, you can draw direct parallels to socialism. Direct parallels. It doesn't take an effort to, to grasp that. Douglas makes it so clear. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely, K. Carl. And this is the ignorance, again, comes into play. And uh, I was talking to my mom, God bless her, she's 86, and uh, she doesn't have a, a TV reception or anything, so she's at times oblivious to what's going on in the world. But I was discussing the Kavanaugh case. I says, Mom, do you know how bad it is now that we have politicians that openly state they're communists and socialists? They openly state it. She goes, no, that's not possible. I says, you have in Congress the Communist Caucus, and every last one of them is a Democrat. Unless we get this information out about the truth, we will then get more of these, uh, the, what, this one that's running in Queens, New York. Uh, what's her name? Ocasio, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to have more and more of that in Congress, and we will lose the republic forever. Yes. The, the best way again, to ensure liberty, to make sure the Constitution is defended, is to take the writings of a former slave and use that and leverage that because how can you argue with a one-and-way slave? How can you argue with him about his love for liberty, his value for the Constitution? Now, Now, they can attack no. me on it. When I leverage Frederick Douglass, what he had to say, now we see some common ground. We got to put Douglass in the game because by putting him in the game, it defeats all the propaganda attacks and the false rhetoric. Every single argument they have doesn't work on Frederick Douglass. It doesn't work. He was not a no, racist. It doesn't. Douglass was a victim of racism. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't see that. I feel like, since I won the lottery because out of 350 million people in the United States, God has given me this, given me this message and this perspective. And it is my goal and my mission as a ministry to equip freedom advocates with this information so they can start engaging their family members, their friends, and people of different ethnicities about the importance of liberty and why li- li- <coughs> liberty worth dying for. Excuse me. <clears throat> Well, we're down to our last few minutes, Kay Carl, and I wanted to thank you for sticking it with us and uh, hope your son is safe and off at school or home from school by now. Uh, so I want to thank you I'll and telling people to uh, check out your website, diversityengagement.org, as well as libertymessengerusa.org. And thank you for all the hard work you do, sir. Yes, right, thank indeed. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, see you. Talk to you later. <laughs> all right, take care. All right. Uh, K. Carl Smith, check him out again. Uh, there's a link up on the show page. Matter of fact, I've got it misspelt on the show page. I'll correct that after the show. But, Curtis, we're going to be back here on Friday. Ryman Schof is going to be joining us again, as well as Dan Perkins. So that's going to be a great show. Right. And then next week, uh, we've got Burgess Owens. He's got a new book out, uh, Why I Stand. 
Uh, I always loved Burgess what? Owens. And guess what? He and, he added me at the end of it. Got a little blurp in there he about really? your co-host. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, really? He didn't mention me, but you, huh? Huh. huh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And uh, we also have Scott A. Shea. He's got a new book out also, uh, How to... Uh, oh, good Lord. Uh, basically, how to defend yourself against atheists. And uh, we've got great shows lined up. So keep in tune with us, guys. want to thank everyone that was up in the chat room, uh, as well as up on YouTube and Facebook. I apologize. I got kicked out of my own chat room just a few minutes ago. So if there was oh, something no. I missed, I apologize. But that's all Blame we got it for on today. Blame it on Michael. Uh, those are... Those in uh, Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas were going to be get hit again, it looks like. So please be safe out there. So until then, I leave you with our closing uh, song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So until then, I say good night and God bless. <laughs>